Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Gate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. We're your hosts for this week, it's me, Farmers Guardian News Editor Olivia Midgley. And me, Farmers Guardian Editor Ben Briggs. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. So subscribe through all your favourite podcast platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google, Apple, Stitcher or Acast, to ensure you stay up to date with all the new episodes. Well, we've got a packed show for you this week with a one-off 50-minute special. We speak to Shanka Singham, the trade and competition lawyer who's sitting on the newly formed Trade and Agriculture Commission. This is the watchdog convened to advise government on trade policies to secure opportunities for UK farmers, but importantly, ensure producers are not undercut by substandard imports. First up though, and how do we make sure the Prime Minister's recently announced radical reform of England's planning system works for rural areas? We've spoken on the show before about the dithering and delay, which so often seems intrinsic within local authority planning offices. So will Boris Johnson's latest overhaul really work for farmers? And will his build, build, build mantra become a reality? Jez Fredenberg has been finding out more. At Bayer, we know that a successful crop doesn't happen by chance. So we're giving you more support this autumn with an online hub full of our latest insight and advice to help you get the best results. Search online for Bayer Critical Advantage to find out more. Farm shops, commercial units, rural housing and a myriad of other farm diversifications and community needs all rely on getting through the planning system. But it can be hard work, complicated, frustrating, expensive and not always successful. With the announcement of the planning white paper a couple of weeks ago, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson promised a radical reform for England unlike anything we have seen since the Second World War. A system that he says will be clearer, simpler, quicker to navigate, delivering results in weeks and months rather than years and decades. So, is it really that radical? And will the plans deliver on those promises? I've been speaking to a planning consultant about what the government plans might actually mean for farmers. But first, I caught up with farmer William Ashley at Monk's Green Farm in Hertfordshire. William does battle with the planning system more often than most, and has even been helping other farmers navigate it. I wanted to know what his experience of the current system was and what he would change. So on the farm, what we have now is 21 residential properties, which all bring in incomes to the farm and also 10 businesses which are based at at, at the farm. We started off with an old 17th century barn that we got a change of use from agriculture to uh, residential because the barn was was worthy of retention. That That was our first project that we did. Our second project was that we converted our old three chicken sheds into 12 live-work properties. We then, probably four or five years ago, Class MB came into force, which was superseded by Class Q. This was a government initiative to go from agriculture to residential. We thought then this was, there was a 56-day process, a prior approval 56-day process to go through to, to, to get the, the permission. And we thought, well, this is, this is great news. So we then put in uh, two of our agricultural barns to, to convert them into three residential dwellings. 
Little did we know that this was going to be an absolute nightmare and turned into a three and a half year project to get to where we've got to, which was approving the class Q. Blimey, it's quite, it's quite impressive, William, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds impressive, which it is, but don't forget it's been a 17-year project. And I suppose, all in all, we've helped probably 25, 30 farmers and, and getting probably 30, 35 class queues. What, in your experience of doing all that, what are the biggest barriers to development for farmers in the system as it currently stands? Well, that is, that's a very good question. And uh, my first initial answer, answer to that is the sustainability. And if I just, um, uh, just explain about our, our developments up here, as I say, we, we have 21 residential properties. We've got six actual residential properties that family live in. We have 12 business based up here. We've got high speed uh, broadband. But the, but the council still classes as an unsustainable location. In what sense? Why is, why is that then? What, what do they mean when they say that? Because, because what they say is that we're not near the local services. We're not near the local shops. We're not near the local bus stations. We're not, not, not near the local schools. But when you look at it, you know, farming is not uh, in a position that that they are near those facilities because, you know, they wouldn't have given us permission for farms and farm buildings uh, if if we would have been near the shops or near the school or or near Mm. the bus stop. And And incidentally, with the bus stop and bus services, that's a council service. My second issue would be the green belt. The thing is, 50 years ago, when the green belt was, was, was done, 50, 60 years ago, uh, it was all very, very good. But, but since then, the times have changed. And, uh, you know, the, the green belt need, needs revising now, as far as, I'm, as I, I see it. And I know some councils are releasing green belt, but I think I'm a, I'm a firm believer of the countryside and the green belt, but I feel green, some of the green belt must, must be released to, to, to build the houses. And, and what I'm always a, a great advocate of saying to farmers is if every farmer was to build five houses on their farm, which the government are trying to encourage them to build five houses on the farm, wouldn't it, it almost solve the housing problem virtually overnight? And then with those houses, again, that would support the local communities, the local villages, the local shops, the local pubs, and so on and so forth. My third um, uh, barrier would be the costs. The thing is, it can mount, in, mount up to an awful lot of cost for farmers, for developers. The council are very good. They want surveys, they want bat surveys, they want newt surveys, they want uh, uh, landscape surveys. There's no end of surveys and reports and things that they want you to do, which can cost individuals an awful lot of money. And then that's also going, then you go through the process and if you're not careful, you come out the other side and then you have to go to appeal and then the appeal process is another costly and and, and lengthy thing lengthy process to go through okay yeah and no, that sounds like there's a, there's a lot a lot of issues to be resolved um what do you think if you could if you could wave a magic wand you know what would you what would be the one thing that you would change about the planning system i don't think there's one thing i think there's several things i'd, I'd like to, like to change 
What I think the, the most important thing is for the planners to look at applications on a view of granting applications. Government have said this, that, that planners must look positively on all applications. I find that the councils tend to look at all applications is, I want to find a reason to refuse this. And they can find those reasons. You know, there's lots of reasons that you can refuse things if you want to refuse things. But I think there, might, there, there needs to be a more proactive approach from the council, from the planners, that will work with applicants to try and grant things and get things through. Also, another issue is, I find, is that policies, policies are a matter of interpretation. It encroaches onto the green belt. It's detrimental to the green belt. It's visually intrusive. These are all uh, subjective judgments which the planner that makes the decision can can make those judgments and 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 refuse the applications on on, on any of those uh, those judgments and those things. What do you think, William, in terms of? You know, farmers who might be listening to this and haven't got the kind of experience that you have, <clears throat> excuse me, with the planning system, what would be like your three top tips for them, uh, you know, before they start to, to make any applications? Right. The, the, the first tip and then the major tip is to look at your local plan, consult your local plan, look at the policies and how the policies can work for you. That is my number one tip. Secondly, what I'd advise people to do is to actually talk to organisations. You've got the NFU, you've got the CLA, who have all got excellent advisors that can then put you in touch with other farmers that have done projects that you're thinking of doing uh, and, link, and link you together. Also, what I would say is, is look at the broadband issues because many farmers around here troubles with broadband. So think of those issues before you actually get into the planning system because it's not worth having industrial units or, or, or residential units if you can't fill them up because your broadband speed is very, very, very slow. And I think my final tip is to actually never, ever give up. Just keep at it. You know, we've got to where we've got to. Um, but the thing is, it's taken 16 years, 17 years. It should really have taken about 18 months. But the, the, the whole system is very, very frustrating. It's very, very slow. Just realise that the planners are, are, are putting barriers in front of you all, all the time. So talk with those organisations chat with local farmers, but don't give up. So, will the white paper make things quicker and easier as William hopes? Joining me now is Laura Dudley-Smith, a planning consultant at Stratton Parker, to dive into this. So, Laura, what were your initial reactions on reading the white paper? So, yeah, I think um, it's been, it's obviously it was sort of much hyped about. Um, we were all expecting it, um, looking forward to what it was going to have to say. Um, Obviously, it uses the the word radical, which I think um, is is the key thing. Really, it it certainly feels like a definite intention from the government to be something quite significant. Um, that obviously, for people in our industry, that's potentially quite exciting. Um, it's got certainly seems to have sort of big intentions. Um, I think the big question on everyone's lips still, however, is sort of how how those ideas and um, intentions are delivered, um, how they actually come to being implemented in the real world 
my views were in, the, in terms of complexity. The question is, can you ever negate that without losing kind of the ability for planning to be flexible and controlled to appropriate levels? Um, speed, I'll never complain about them trying to speed speed things up. <laughs> that can only be a good thing, surely. Um, but it means uh, there's a risk that actually perhaps the delays will therefore just come at different stages in the process. And also, of course, it always comes, well, it's highly likely to come down to a lot in terms of the local planning authorities and their capacity and resourcing that they're going to have to actually turn a system that they've just been getting to grips with for the last few years. So what, you know, for farmers and landowners specifically, rural landowners, what are the key parts of the planning white paper that they need to know about? So I think, yeah, for farmers and kind of those with the interest in, with interest in, in the rural areas, um, quite interesting, actually, I did do the, uh, the classic control F on the white paper and noticed that the word agriculture wasn't mentioned once. Um, and yeah, and the word rural featured once. <laughs> um, so wow. I think my God, yeah. okay. <laughs> just panic you all there. <laughs> um, but no, I think um, I say that, but then I think what it kind of clarified to me that actually the white paper seems to focus very much on um, changing the, the planning processes rather than the kind of fundamental principles, I think. Um, the more we look into it, the more you think actually is it is it making any drastic changes in terms of where we will develop, um, how we'll develop? I don't think so. I think actually what it's looking to do is to streamline the process um, and just make it less complex. Or a lot of people have been talking about the the zoning system. Just to to mention to everyone listening, so the the zoning system is basically the the planning paper has proposed creating zones of. I quote, growth, renewal and protection, hasn't it? So three different types of zones. Ultimately, as, as planners, we already have three tiers of certainty in terms of where development's suitable. Um, I think the kind of, there's the growth areas, which is ultimately it's likely to be within cent- existing settlements, urban areas on land that's previously developed. And then there's the second tier down of sort of edge of settlement, greenfield site. And then beyond that, you have the areas of countryside, green belt, landscape areas that are pretty well protected. Um, and, and we would be suggesting could be quite a difficult battle to fight. Is it is it likely to create a bit more of a postcode lottery? Because we know that's been a, a problem before with permitted development rights. I think it I think it'd be a little bit of both. I think as I say, a lot of it will be I think a lot of the zoning will simply clarify where we know development was already kind of being targeted anyway. Um but there will be some sort of areas of or some grey areas at the moment that will have to be put into one zone or another. Um which is where for example you know, if it's, uh, say, like an edge of settlement location or things like that, where we would have kind of given it a, a sort of 50-50 chance, it's, it's got to then be, it's got to now, it will now have to presumably tip into one or the other of, of the zones. So um, I think, it yeah, it could open up some opportunities there. Um, but yeah, the difficulty will be in how uh, the political side of it and things will come into how those zones are designated, when they are, um, how they're reviewed, um, and whether they are the kind of be all or end all, there's no point even trying, or presumably there will obviously still be kind of an appeal process and, and things like that. So um, I think obviously there's going to be need to be a lot more um, clarification and information. I think obviously that there's, there's talk about there being a, a lot more, um, the process being a lot more accessible to the, the general public and them having opportunities to be 
more involved as well. I, I can't really see that and an intention to speed the process up as going together. <laughs> I suppose the only other area that, at the moment um, are some of the other updates that have come out around the white paper. So um, there's obviously been the extension of some permitted development rights and also the changes to the use classes. So I think there's a couple of little op- small opportunities potentially for farmers and re- and um, rural landowners. The permitted development rights, the um, the kind of the key to the two key changes are obviously this um, allowance to extend built, existing residential buildings upwards by two stories. That's potentially not of um, as much relevance uh, for kind of farmers and existing landholders and things. But um, the other angle is that there, there's now a provision for the demolition and rebuild of existing offices. Um, so if there, you know, there, there could well be sites potentially where farmers have already, you know, historically diversified and have got office buildings um, or light industrial buildings on on their holding, um, which may now be considered suitable under that allowance for demolition and rebuild for residential dwellings. Um, Again, it, it it takes out a bit of the risk and uncertainty given that it's written into the permitted development rights. But as usual, with, with a lot of the rights, it still requires, um, I think it still requires prior approval. And there's a, there's a, ho- a whole host of conditions that you have to be able to demonstrate compliance with before you can do that. And ultimately, actually, if you've got an office already, that would be categorised as previously developed land and under existing planning policy, there is um, kind of, within reason support for the redevelopment of that sort of land anyway so so i think they're they're the two key ones for permitted development rights at the moment um the only other thing probably worth mention is the changes to the use classes the kind of mix up of the use classes has introduced one um new quite all encompassing commercial use class so use class e um so within that use class now that includes buildings being used for kind of food drink retail offices day nurseries, um, a whole host of other uses. And so it means that between those various uses, they can chop it, they can chop and change without needing formal permission. So again, um, there could be, I'm assuming there could be um, opportunities for, for farm holdings, for example, and existing farm buildings that may have also, or may have already diversified into some of those areas um, to perhaps consider some other uses within that use class now that it encompasses a bit um, a few more categories. The paper uh, does set out some quite evident support for sort of small to medium scale developers as well um, to sort of balance out the process between them and some of the larger kind of national house builders. Um, it's suggesting that the sort of in, suggesting an, an all encompassing infrastructure levy as opposed to um, the current requirements in terms of community infrastructure levies sill um and section 106 requirements so that will um i think that will give these smaller developers certainty or more certainty from the outset to predict the kind of viability of schemes and what they can achieve on sites that they're looking at which i think in the rural areas will be beneficial because often these smaller developers are, are probably the people that can be most interested in the kind of um edge of set, edge of village locations so those kind of small growth sites um, and there's also the um, that's being offered in the short term uh, affordable housing relief for um, residential sites, which pushes the, the affordable housing requirement up to only being required on sites of over 40 or 50 
dwellings rather than 10 as it is at the moment. So again, that, that sort of scale of development, I think, will become a lot more attractive. Well, let's, let's look at that for a second, because, it, I mean, something that has very much um, been a critique of the, uh, of the white paper is it's been called a developer's charter, by, that was Labour calling it that, because of the issue of it having to diminish the affordable housing requirements, basically. So, you know, what are the implications for rural communities and farmers, estate owners, you know, who need to employ people locally and, and ensure that there is a vibrant local community? I think I, I don't think the government will ever get away with... Um reducing the likelihood of affordable housing being delivered so i think whilst they're perhaps um but hasn't it hasn't dang- it just done that with well this i think i think i think it's dangling a bit of a carrot i think um it's suggesting a kind of potential short-term um opportunity for them but it's at the moment it's proposed for only 18 months and also we don't know again we don't know the details of how um it will be sort of enforced and delivered so for example will it be sites that um are submitted within that window is it sites that are determined within that window um will they restrict people um because for example if someone's already got planning permission on the site but hasn't built it out could they go in and submit a new application within that window to then reduce the requirement for affordable housing um we don't know obviously that's what some developers might be hoping for um but i that's that's where i expect the government will probably be quite stringent in terms of the how how the offering is managed um i also think obviously as i said alongside it there is also this intention to introduce a a a, sta- a set levy um infrastructure levy so and that will ensure contributions to affordable housing on all sites that are proportionate to the value of the development site. Do you think that these zones and the whole approach strikes the right balance between being able to, you know, protect green areas, key agricultural land, key habitats, that kind of thing, but also allowing development where it is needed? Yeah, I, I hope that's what it will that's what it will achieve. Um I think it will yeah, it will ensure the protection of the areas that are probably in the majority already subject to some sort of designation, be it green belt areas of um, outstanding natural beauty and things like that. Um, but then open, open up opportunities for, for the other areas. It will, will kind of recognise where they're not under those designations, that they should be being considered um, in order to protect the, the more kind of high value areas in terms of landscape and protection. A lot still to, to think about then and see, see what happens, basically. We've got to just wait and see, uh, like you say, on the detail of everything. CLA members own or manage around half of the rural land in England and Wales and run more than 250 types of businesses. The in-house professional advisory team offers members independent and impartial advice on every aspect of land ownership and during this Covid crisis the CLA has never been more important to landowners of any size. To find out more go to www.cla.org.uk Thanks to Jez, Laura and William for talking us through that. Now, and it's fair to say the recently announced Trade and Agriculture Commission received a mixed response when it was announced by Trade Secretary and former DEFRA Chief Liz Trust last month. But Commission member Shankar Singham, known in political circles as the brains of Brexit for his close ties with Eurosceptics, has been speaking to us about the Commission's role in protecting British farmers in new trade deals. He tells our chief reporter, Abby Kay, why there needs to be more light and less heat on issues like animal welfare, 
why the notion of being on a level playing field with European colleagues is fanciful, and why he's so confident the UK will secure a deal with the EU soon. So it's fair to say there's been a bit of concern in the farming community about your appointment to the Commission. Um, I think there's a perception that you would like the UK to move more towards the US regulatory sphere. Would you say that's a fair characterisation? And what would you say to farmers who are concerned? The only thing I would say, the only thing I would say on that is I've, I've addressed the National Farmers Union Conference uh, several times. Um, I have very good relationships with, with farmers. Uh, my focus uh, with respect to my work on the Commission is how do we support UK farmers? Uh, and I think that is covered in a number of different um, areas. So certainly I think support of UK farmers with respect to ensuring that they don't face barriers around the world. There are significant barriers that UK farmers face around the world and we certainly part of our part of our discussion ought to be to um, uh, see how we can knock those barriers down for UK farmers. Um, I think also ensuring that UK farmers have access to the, the best technology available to lower their costs as much as we can um, uh, would be uh, would be a good um, starting point. Uh, I did do my views are very well contained. I've been very public um, in um, probably the agriculture. We, we did a, I did a report for for the IEA on agriculture called Fertile Ground. Um, and when I produced it, um, the reaction from the farmers, uh, farming community, and from the NFU was, you know, we agree with. 90% of this, mm. because I, I was very specific about the kinds of direct payments I thought we should continue to, to have for farmers, uh, environmental remediation payments, those sorts of things. So I'm not somebody who, uh, and there are people like this, I mean, there are people who will simply say, uh, we should just liberalise immediately and farming is no different than anything else, and uh, we should just have complete uh, complete free market in 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 agriculture and I'm as you will see from the report that I wrote I'm not one of those people so so you know that that would be my 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 response to that would be read the report read what I've written and you'll find that you probably agree with 90% of it just as the other would you say that it's fair to say that you would prefer a US style regulatory approach to an EU one would that be fair no, I think it would be fair to say, as I said in the report, and, and you should read the report because it, it, it contains exactly what my views are, um, uh, I, I, I would say that it is certainly true that the EU is in violation of WTO SPS rules in a number of areas. It is certainly true that the EU is isolated in the SPS area with respect to other countries in the world, not just... So there's 33 developing countries that have complained about the EU's SPS regime. There are because it's a barrier to, to their products and development in general. And there are uh, a number of developed countries now, Canada, India, uh, Australia, the um, US, all of Latin America. I mean, there's a big coalition of countries. The EU is very much an outlier on SPS, the SPS area. And I, I, where I, I would say that the UK, especially since you know, it wants to be a, lead, a leading uh, a voice in the WTO, um, the UK needs to ensure that it complies with WTO rules, mm. um, which is, you know, in, in that respect, you know, Boris Johnson has said that very specifically as well. So I'm not really saying anything that members of the UK government aren't, aren't saying and haven't already said. Do you think?
think, I mean, I know that it's the, the role of the Commission to, to look at this, but do you think that the WTO rules are right for the 21st century? Do they encompass enough as animal welfare and environmental standards? Are they included in the way that they should be in WTO rules? Well, I, I, we're looking at all those issues. And, and um, the, when we look at the, when we say what are the WTO rules, it's important that we understand that there is a you know, multi-decade body of work that goes into the SPS committee and that goes into the Three Sisters, Codex Elementarius, OIE and IPPC. Uh, and what we shouldn't do, I think, is just simply jump in and, and say, well, we, we think it should be this way. If we're not actually building positively on that body of, that multi-decade body of work. And I think where we can build on that multi-decade body of work, we should. Um, and we should uh, also work with our trading partners to, to, to do it. Mm. So, uh, and it's not just in the Three Sisters group. Um, uh, that there is a huge amount of work on this on these subjects already. Uh, it's also um, in other bodies like the OECD and, and and so on that's looked at regulation and looked at the regular you know, produced regulatory toolkit and all of those things. So, so I think. Um, the, the important thing is that in, in agriculture on any of these issues is that you don't just sort of create new things out of whole cloth, but you recognise that you know people have been working on these issues for 30 or 40 years, while we, the UK, have been inside the EU, and the EU has been leading on these trade policy issues. Um, and we need to understand, first of all, what the baselines are and what the body of work already is uh, before we start saying how we want to... To, to, to advance it or to change it. Do you think there is an appetite at the WTO to change it, particularly on things like animal welfare and the environment, perhaps some climate change issues? Well, I mean, the, the, your, question, your question sort of implies that there's been no work on this area, whereas the OIE has done a huge amount of work on animal welfare. Um, and, uh, you know, I think we need a bit more light on the on the debate in terms of what actually we're talking about um, and what, what is the work that's already, you know, been developed and, and what is the current thinking on these things. And it's, it, it's very, very specific. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that um, anyone's um, simply advocating what you read in the more um, lurid tabloid press on these issues, but um, uh, but some of the stories that appear in, in those papers are, are, are simply uh, completely at variance with reality, and it's important that we understand what the reality of these issues is uh, before we sort of try to figure out how to how to include them. But it's really important that we understand that all of this has to, is in a context, and the wider context is the is the global trade policy. Um, agenda and what we don't want to do, I think, is uh, suggest anything that, that that completely blows up the, the the existing global trading system. Would you then? I mean, you say there's been a lot of work done at a global level. Would you? Do you accept the premise that the UK has higher standards in these areas than other countries, or or not? I think that's such a broad statement that it's almost meaningless. Um, the, the the UK has. Um, good standards in some areas and not good standards in other areas. Other countries vary entirely across the uh, across the map. So it, it, it's, it's not a question that I think there, there is an answer to. So you wrote a piece recently for 
I think it was Global Vision, where you said that the UK shouldn't apply a dual tariff regime to protect standards. Can you explain a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more detail about why you why you opposed to that? It's a, it's a sort of fundamental principle of, um, of of international trade policy that you don't you don't you don't want to create a system where you're starting to differentiate products based on how they're how they're made. I mean, there are certain exemptions to that. It's a complex issue. Um, but you've got to be careful about doing that because once you go down that road, it becomes very easy for that to become a protectionist sort of charter. You know, people will claim that something's made in a way they don't like. Well, really, what they're doing is is getting protection for their for their domestic industry, and that's why that's why the WTO is sort of uh, has historically been some you know very opposed to that sort of approach uh, because it's inherently very dangerous. So. I think we've got to be careful with those kinds of suggestions, um, and I think there are other ways um, of, of, of solving that problem. I think the best, the best way of solving something like the animal welfare issue is to ensure that we've made the arguments in the OIE and built on the body of uh, expertise that already exists in the OIE. That, that's how you that's how you move the WTO system forward. You, 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 you get consensus in the sound science-based standard-setting bodies in, that are connected to the WTO, and then you, you, you brought on board your trading partners and you worked in coalitions to get people to um, uh, to accept this. But the, the problem with the dual tariff is, of course, it means there wouldn't there could never be a deal with the EU either, uh, because we're we're we're, we're bringing in um, poultry and other things from places like Poland and, 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 and other countries in the European Union that wouldn't satisfy some of those standards. Mm. So so. Uh, again, and that's an un- there are a lot of unintended consequences with suggestions that that, um, uh, that, that some might make in order to um, protect the domestic industry. And you've got to think through what all those unintended, unintended consequences are. Um, you know, you, you, your target might be the US, but you're going to capture the EU, uh, and you're going to capture you know even countries like Thailand or Michigan and uh, many other countries that we we currently import from. Would you accept that there's a difference between other goods and products and animals when it comes to production method? So obviously animals are sentient beings, so there is a difference between rearing an animal and producing another kind of good. Would you accept that there is a difference and does that make a difference when you're looking at something like dual tariffs? There, there are cases, I mean, I wouldn't go down the route of dual tariffs, but, but, um, but certainly there are cases of... Um, uh, in the WTO, where where animals are involved, where you can, you, 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 there is there is starting to be um, the potential to include so-called um, PPMs, product, process, and manufacturing me- methodologies, um, where you could uh, think about how they're actually produced, and you got you got you know some famous cases like the shrimp, shrimp turtle case and. and and others that have looked at these specific areas. And I think it's, it's, it's always a balance. I mean, you've just got to think about what, what is the reason uh, for this? Or is it an animal welfare reason or is it, a, is it just a protection, protectionism uh, reason? Um, and then you've got to think through what those standards might actually be. And then you say that the way to advance animal welfare standards is to work globally and to do that in a collaborative way. Um, but I mean that that's going to take years, isn't it? So is there not a risk that in the interim period 
we could sign deals and I take your point that you know we do already accept food that is produced to lower standards that is a given but is it not a risk that in the meantime while you're trying to come to some sort of agreement at a global level that you could increase the level of imports that we get that aren't produced to our standards and that could undercut our farmers well I mean first of all I would, I would say you'll understand what, what is what is the standard that you're that you're talking about I mean um, there's quite a lot of evidence that if you look at the US, for example, um, there, there is organic farming in the US that, uh, for, for chicken, uh, approximately an area the size of Wales. So, so if uh, if the UK wanted poultry that was organically produced, I think the US ambassador talks about um, if British people want to eat chicken that has been raised as somebody's family pet, they can. Um, so there is vast differences in the US uh, of, of different um, yeah. products. That are made, um, and there are also so so the, the, what you could do is you could do so it's not a dual tariff, which I think is fraught with all kinds of difficulties. But you could have a, the same approach we have with beef hormones from the US, where we have so-called Hilton beef, which is a high-quality non-hormone treated beef, and you have a quota for uh, that so-called Hilton beef from the US. You could do something similar with organic, you know, poultry or or, or what have you. Uh, and and you allow the product in on that basis. That's much better than the dual tariff. In in, in, in this tariff is going to um, skew the, the the economics of uh, of imports and create a, uh, an incentive for protection. Um, I, I so you'd ra- you'd rather have a, a quota approach. No, I mean you could do that. I mean that's certainly it's certainly something we've done before. I mean, we've done that with Hilton Beef. Um, uh, the Hilton beef quota exists because of the uh, the negotiations uh, as a result of the EU's SPS violation. Um, I mean, that's why the Hilton beef uh, quota exists. It's, it's ironic that actually the Argentines and um, and some of the other countries benefited, even though they weren't um, they didn't bring the case against the EU. So technically, retaliation should apply only to the should benefit only the person who brought the case. But you know. It's, they benefited from the Hilton beef quota into the EU. Um, so I think you could possibly do something similar um, for, 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 for poultry. Um, but, but also you've got to, you've got to you know, what is, you know, what are our standards actually in the case of, uh, and then you have to think about what happens with our slaughterhouses and, and so forth, where, where we, we may not be as good as we think we are, and the US may not be as bad as we think it is. So, for example, stocking densities of poultry um, in the US vary um, uh, from about 32 kilograms per square meter to about 43 kilograms per square meter. Well, the UK max is 39. So there are certainly areas and there are certainly farms in the US um, where the stocking density is actually um, uh, is actually lower than, than the UK's stocking density. So. Yeah, then, then that, that becomes an issue of well, who is actually better on animal welfare in that particular case. Mm. So well, I think you just need to, there needs to be a lot more light on this issue and a lot less heat. Um, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll hopefully make some progress. What about on the arable side of things? So for crops that are produced using pesticides and um, herbicides that are banned here, would you advocate a similar sort of quota approach or would you just how how would you say that we should protect our standards on that front well i mean i think i think it's it's relatively straightforward i mean if the standard is 
an SPS compliant standard, in other words, it's proportionate, it's necessary, and it's based on sound science, then it's perfectly legitimate for the UK to have that standard. And if the UK has that SPS standard, and uh, you know, it's, it's legitimate then to, um, to to apply that standard to imports as well. So, so the, the critical question here is. What is your standard? Is it is it compliant with the rules? Is it based on sound science? And unfortunately, with a lot of EU, I'm not talking about UK here, with a lot of EU um, uh, standards in the crop sector, there's there's quite a lot of, and this is increasing rather than decreasing. Um, there's quite a lot of um, stuff that's coming down the pike that is probably going to violate the the SPS rules. But you know, the, the rules are there for a reason. Um, they aren't just random. You know, rules. They're there because of the dangers of protectionism uh, in in this sector. So, um, as long as your as long as you as long as your standard or whatever it is complies with, um, uh, and the SBS rules in the WTO give you a lot of latitude to um, uh, provide the science is there to 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 ban you know products that you that are unsafe. Um, that should be the end of the. That should be the end of the story. I mean, that that, that enables you to apply it and to ban imports that violate your standards. Can I give you a concrete example? The neonics ban. Michael Gove, when he was deputy secretary, he was asked about whether we would be able to ban imports of wheat, say, grown with neonics, and he said no. So, what, in your opinion, do you think that that would be that ban would be able to be upheld? At, a WTO level, that standard. No, I don't think. I think the neonics ban is not um, is is would would fall foul of the SPS uh, agreement. I mean, we'll have to see because um, we'll have to see when somebody brings a case um, as to how it, how that case um, pans out and how, and what the science is saying on this. But implicitly in the EU. Uh, um, I mean, countries get to choose whether they want to have a neonics ban or, or not. So there are some countries in the EU that don't. Um, uh, and so it creates a very odd situation in the EU itself. Uh, because if we were to say, well, we're going to ban products that are growing with these standards, we would have to stop blocking products from the EU. completely understand that. There was a piece that I think you sort of touched on neonics without mentioning them by name in a piece you did for CapEx recently, where you were talking about farmers having access to technology. That was the point that you were making. Um, And you said that these banned certain insecticides, which made um, growing oilseed, rape and wheat uneconomical, uneconomic, sorry. That's That's a fair enough point to make, but I spoke to DEFRA... This week, actually, because uh, France had lifted, well, they'd granted a three-year derogation to the ban for um, neonics to be used on sugar beet. And I asked Ephra whether they would consider doing the same here. And they basically said no, because all the evidence shows that they're harmful to bees, even though it's a non-flowering crop. So do you think, I mean, the appetite for me is not there from the government, the UK government. They want to present themselves as very green. They don't want to go down this deregulatory route. So having that sort of level playing field it's difficult because the uk isn't going to backtrack i don't think on what the eu has done i I think the the uk government has to think about lots of different interests and certainly one of the interests that they do have to think about um is the interests of uk farmers and um there is a there's a point at which you certainly talk to some i mean if you talk to crop farmers if you talk to wheat farmers or you talk to oilseed rape or any of the other 
crops. I mean, I think that the, what, what they've told me, and what I'm sure they'll tell you, is that there's a danger that at some point it becomes uneconomic because of our wet summers and uh, our temperate climate. It becomes uneconomic to, to farm this. Yeah. So um, I think the, these are considerations that the government needs to have in its mind. It isn't only uh, well, what's the you know what's the scientific you know, the studies are saying is there any risk at all um, from these kinds of products? Because of course you can find some risk obviously with any product. So it, it's really weighing those different factors. And I think particularly in this area, if we want to have, and uh, maybe the government doesn't want to have, uh, wheat production in the UK or oilseed grape production in the UK, um, if you want to have it, then you're going to have to approach this in a different way. To return to the point of a US deal, and I'm sorry, I don't want to hammer this point because there are other deals that are important, but I went over to Minnesota a couple of years ago and went to go and see the farming over there and it really struck me that the farmers I was speaking to in different states they were all abiding by different rules on animal welfare and that kind of thing how hard do you think it will be for the UK to include any of those sort of animal welfare arrangements in a trade or because all the rules are done at a state level they're not necessarily at a federal level yeah I mean that's a it's not only that, they said you've got that point. Well, one is that the rules that are, are, are on these areas are at state level to the extent there are rules. And uh, the other point is, and this is a general point about the US's standard setting system, which is, um, which is going to be difficult for, um, for the UK in a trade agreement with the US. Um, the US tends to rely on voluntary standard setting. So you have a lot of voluntary standards that are applied and you've got things through the supply chain that are, that are applied on a voluntary basis, some of which are quite advanced and actually quite far, far more advanced than anything we have um, in our laws. Uh, because it tends to be that voluntary standards can be much more, can be much more, um, uh, much more advanced um, in, that, in that way. Um, so you've got those two issues. Now, on the state issue uh, and even municipality issue, um, the, there are many trade agreements where uh, the states do, they do join up to the trade agreement itself. So if you look at government procurement, uh, there are some, I think, 36 US states that are members uh, in their own right, as it were, um, of the WTO government procurement agreement because they have affirmatively joined up to these rules. So I think part of the UK strategy with the US will be to, um, you know, will be to um, uh, negotiate with, directly with the states and convince them that they, that's in their, it's in their interest to sign up to the terms of the agreement so that you get their you know, compliance. Um, uh, you know, into that, but but, the, 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 but there's also an additional difficult issue, which is the, the preponderance of voluntary standard-setting organisations in the US versus compulsion through through laws and rules. You mentioned that you spoke at NFU conference um, a few times. In the 2018 conference, you said that the city was farming's friend because um, EU firms need access to the city and that will drive a tariff-free deal with the EU that will be of benefit to UK farming. Is that something that you stand by? Do you still think there's going to be a deal, a tariff-free deal? Do I still think there'll be a deal with the EU? Yeah. Um, I do, I do. I think there will be a deal with the EU. Um, uh, I suspect, and I've written an article about this as well, about what the landing zones might be. 
Um, and uh, I suspect that there is a landing zone for things like state aids, level playing field. You know, the UK is committed to having its own anti-subsidy regime. Uh, the EU's concern is, um, uh, you know, we don't want you to subsidise your companies for, you know, get the advantage over EU companies, which is a totally legitimate concern. But that is solved by the UK having an anti-subsidy regime. Mm. Uh, I think it's also even open for the UK to accept European suggestions about high-level um, commitments. In, in it. So basically the agreement would say, well, you, both sides have to have an anti-subsidy regime. That regime has to include the following core elements. That, that I think would be acceptable to the UK. Um, and uh, some sort of dispute settlement mechanism, if one or the other side is violating its anti-subsidy regime, the state aid regime in their case and our anti-subsidy regime in our case I think that would be acceptable to both sides and I think on labour and environment um, the UK has already committed actually ironically it's committed in the US agreement to um, because the US has asked for it, not the other way around the US has said that the UK is not to lower its labour and environmental standards for trade advantage so we've already committed that we're not going to lower our labour and environmental standards for trade advantage so that's what the EU, I think, should pocket. Right. Um, and, and then on fisheries, um, uh, and I've written an extensive paper on fisheries as well, um, uh, I think there's a very clear landing zone there, which is that we, um, you know, we don't um, exclusively fish in our exclusive economic zone now. Uh, we can't. Um, we need other people to fish in our exclusive economic zone and land fish in our ports or in their ports. Um, we export a lot of the fish that is um, fished in, in our exclusive economic zone. Uh, and so as long as the EU treats the UK as an independent coastal state and we negotiate that ac those access terms in the ordinary way, as Norway and Iceland and the Faroe Islands do, then I think it's really ultimately a question about a number. And in all questions about numbers, generally, you know, you get you get to a solution. So I think there's a landing zone there. But all of this requires the EU to accept a very simple, you know, premise which David Frost raised in his Brussels speech, which was, you, you, the UK is not going to put its legal order under somebody else's legal order. Mm. It's just not going to do that. Uh, and, and on fisheries, it, it, it wants to be an independent coastal state like every other country you know, in the world. And um, if the EU accepts those two sort of fundamental points, then I think what will happen is you'll then accelerate, I think, momentum will grow, largely because the UK's ask is not very high. And then I think you'll get a deal towards the end of the year. If that doesn't happen and we were to end up in a no-deal scenario... What kind of thing would you like to see happen with agricultural tariffs? I mean, you said, you know, you're not one of these liberalisers who just wants to drop all the tariffs, but presumably there'd be some food price inflation, which we all know governments are quite averse to in that kind of scenario. So what, what kind of solution would you like to see in that, in that situation? Well, I did a report that you might want to look at, um, which um, uh, looked at market distortions, in, particularly in the sugar sector. And I, I made this point that, and I made this point. I actually made this point in a few conference. Um, and I said to farmers in the UK, "You're not on a level playing field now uh, with Europe." Um, uh, essentially, they 
we don't have, we have a tiny amount of voluntary covenant support. It's £38 million for two of the Crofter programmes in Scotland for beef and lamb. But the French have a billion euros worth of, of voluntary couple support. So if you're a, a UK lamb or beef farmer and you're competing with a French beef or lamb farmer who's selling product into the UK, which they are, uh, or if you're competing with them in other European markets or indeed in other world markets, you are complete, you're at a massive competitive disadvantage mm. because they are being highly subsidised. So I think it's reasonable where a UK farming industry identifies uh, a highly distorting, uh, highly market distorting activity in a foreign market, for them to seek from the UK government some sort of tariff, uh, tarification of that distortion. Um, uh, I think that's entirely a reasonable thing to do. And I think that's consistent and economically defensible um, uh, to do that. And you should, but as long as you're doing it in such a way that the party that's distorting its market has an incentive to lower that distortion and then in real time benefit from the reduction of that distortion, i.e. the tariff goes down. Uh, it doesn't sit there for five years and it goes down when, when the other party can prove that they're not distorting their market anymore. I think that's an appropriate um, approach. And actually, if you look at, if you look at the situation, the, the continental European markets are far more distorted than the UK market is. And therefore, um, once we leave, we, we need to think about how, and this goes to the issue of how do we support our farmers. It's not only just breaking down barriers that they face around the rest of the world, it's not only integrating them better into global supply chains, it's also uh, ensuring that they're on a level playing field at home with respect to distortions. The difficult area you get into is on standards. Now, that's why we have the WTO rules. That's why we have the SPS rules. Because you can say that if somebody is lowering their standard in ways that are not supported by, by the SPS uh, regime, uh, in other words, they're deliberate, and what they would be doing then is deliberately lowering, lowering their environmental standards for trade advantage, which is a no-no, um, we would have some mechanism to you know to defensively deal with that which i think is is an appropriate thing to do so what you seem to be talking there is quite a, a targeted approach so saying if if you're getting subsidies for production in one country we should be able to have a tariff to protect our farmers from that but in a no deal scenario you wouldn't really be able to have that kind of targeted approach would you from, from tariffs anyway you'd have to well you could you could you could because we'd have a we'd be on our global tariff schedule in, in the case of the no deal, let's say everyone will pay the same tariff. But you can provide a mechanism through the trade remedies body that we will have that in addition to anti-dumping and, and, and some traditional subsidies, the problem is that for a lot of subsidies, the subsidy system is designed, you know, for it's, it's designed for the Airbus type situation where I you know I'm a government, I give money to a particular company, um, and it's very easy to see and it's very specific. Um, the, the, the subsidy system isn't really designed for market distortions of this nature. So I think we, we, we ought to be able to have a mechanism that enables uh, aggrieved uh, producers to, to... And they would have to prove their case. They can't just assert this. Um, they would have to demonstrate that there is a distortion in another market, that there is a, a, a causative effect on their... Uh, and damage to them as a result. They'd have to prove all these different elements. And as long as they can prove these different elements, then they would be entitled to some sort of tarification of that, 
this talk. So if they if they had to go through that process and prove that there had been damage, that wouldn't be an able to be an instant thing, would it? So you wouldn't be able to do that on day one after a no deal exit. You'd have to have some sort of process. I mean, you can't allow people to you know suddenly impose a tariff for you know with with, with no evidence. Um, there, there has to be evidence, but you know if, if indeed there is such a distortion and it is it is actually affecting a particular industry then that industry is going to do the work to prove that it is effective. Um, uh, so, and, and that's a much better way of doing it because then you, you, you it isn't the government doing it, it, it's the industry itself that's affected um, is, is, is proving the evidence because it knows that that's important. Mm. And the government acts as a sort of arbitrator, the trade remedy body acts as an arbitrator over, because other people will have counterclaims. Mm. You know, sector in the other country will have counterclaims, the importer interests in the UK will have counterclaims, and that's fine. That, that You're more likely to get a, a, a better result, an economically justifiable and a right result, if you allow that process to occur. Uh, you want to take the politics out of this. You don't want somebody to get a tariff because they happen to know the minister. I mean, this is very, this would be very bad practice. You want someone to get a uh, a tariff that recognises the distortion because because those are the facts on the ground. How long do you estimate that that kind of process would, would take? Uh, safeguard processes generally around the world, anti-dumping process can be done on an expedited basis. You can have temporary uh, injunctions in the same way that you have with intellectual property violations where you have a provisional measure in place uh, and somebody can post, post a bond so that if the end result is different then they would have to essentially pay for the damage that's been done to the other sector. Um, but they don't, they don't, these, we're not talking about multi-year processes, I mean, we're talking about fairly rapid uh, litigation processes that we want to put in place. You're still ploughing on and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com forward slash subscriptions today. Thanks to Abby and to Shanka Singham for that insight. Don't forget to check out our Brexit hub. Just visit fginsight.com forward slash Brexit for the latest news, views and analysis on what the UK's departure from the trading bloc means for British agriculture. Well, that's it for this week and thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of all the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. We'll be back next Tuesday and hopefully the weather's improved by then. But from us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening. We hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.